Hello. Hi. So uh, we're back. This is the Weirdest Thing podcast. Um, is it, Wait, is this our first one of the new year? I'm totally lost. Nope. This is no, the second. No, our second one. Okay. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Season five, year two of the That's podcast. Right. And we still have not figured out how to gracefully introduce <laughs> this thing. No, I've given up on even trying at this point. Fantastic. Fantastic. Great. Um, do we need to talk about Yellow Jackets at all? We do, but we should probably introduce ourselves first. Oh, yeah. I guess that's important. I'm Scotty yeah. Milder. I'm Amelia Ampuero. This is our podcast about stuff and yep. things. <laughs> stuff and things. Mostly <laughs> yellow jackets. Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> yeah, blah, blah, blah. Yellow jackets, yellow jackets. Uh, yes. Um, hopefully, people are, if you've been listening to this podcast, you've heeded our, I was about to say our warning, but it's not a warning. It's uh, a desperate plea to watch the show <laughs> so that Scotty and I have someone else to talk about it because we've basically gone through all of our theories with each other at this point. Yeah, it's uh, so yeah, the, the season's done. Uh, you mm-hmm. guys can not that we're like shills for showtime or anything. No, but if they they aren't. They should pay us the amount that we talk about this <laughs> show <true>. and our <laughs> vast podcast audiences, uh, <laughs> which is which is growing. So you know, hey, uh, hi everybody, that's fantastic. I yeah. will say though that this, like several other things that I have gotten into before, this is me being a hipster before they became like really popular. <laughs> Yellow Jackets has exploded. Oh, it um, really has, and like they have. I mean, I've just seen like hot take pieces and think pieces there was a whole thing i think the title i posted it on facebook the title was something uh-huh. like an untitled article about how fucking amazing melanie linsky is yes <laughs> yeah it's great and and yeah so the season's done first season's done we got to wait mm-hmm. like almost a year for season two they answered like i'm not gonna get into spoilers but i will just say they answered almost nothing but the things True. that they did answer were like kind of unexpected and mind-blowing very so. unexpected yeah i'm not gonna lie the last i think like five, four, three minutes of the show was just like, boom, boom, boom of like information and parsed out in a very, in a wonderful way that also made me so mad that I am not watching this show five years Mm -hmm. from now when all the seasons are out. Yeah. Although I saw a thing that was kind of like basically being like Yellow Jackets is sort of proving why like binge TV is like the wrong way to go. Yeah. I've seen a lot of think pieces about that too. Yeah. And basically the point is like a show like Yellow Jackets. Yeah. It's totally bingeable. Yes. Um, but they kind of made a really strong case that like the reason why it sticks in your brain so much is that you're not just like consuming it like candy. Like you have right. to watch an episode and then just like marinate in it for a week and then watch yep. the next episode and marinate. Now, all you guys who are like signing up for the free Showtime week, I mean, go ahead and binge it. It's fine. But binge away. Yeah. Yes. Binge away uh, and enjoy it. But if you can, if you were able, try to spread it out a little bit. Because uh, I, I think that's the thing, too, is that if I had binged it, there's so much stuff I would have missed. Right. Especially right, because right. I went back and watched, I would watch each episode like three times in a week <laughs> between. Yeah. And I think it's one of those shows that like, it, I think just in terms of like self-care, 
you might be better off spreading it out. Because, I mean, I have, like, a high tolerance for dark shit mm-hmm. uh, in TV, but it's kind of a show that I'm glad that I actually I didn't try to do all in one eight-hour session because it might have kind of fucked me up a little bit. Yeah, and this is the interesting thing because, again, the show you know, kind of toes this really like wonderful line of horror, you know, psychological thriller, teen girl angst, uh, you know, awesome 90s music womanhood yeah awesome 90s music and all that stuff and yet and and the reason i bring that up is because i would be hesitant to call this show a horror show it's not quite it's like right right you know there's this whole thing that happens in like the horror writing world about Mm -hmm. like the distinction between horror like pop horror and Uh literary horror Mm -hmm. and i would say like this is like if you were to compare it to a novel it's like i think you can make an argument that it's like literary horror but like Uh but even that i think it's it's like it's got a toe in that world it's not yeah and i think that that's something to understand is that it is not a this isn't American Horror Story. No. This isn't. I'm trying to think of other even like scary shows. That's the thing is that like there is definitely stuff that is like creepy and unsettling and like got into my mm-hmm. marrow. Right. But it's not something that you're going to be like, oh, my God, like, <gasps> you know, I I was technically more scared watching I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which was the mm. documentary that HBO did um, about Michelle McNamara and right. the Golden State Killer. I was more scared watching that than I am watching Yellow. Uh, I almost said Yellowstone. Which is not at all the show that we're talking about. Totally different show. (laughs) (laughs) Then watching Yellow Jackets, but it's still, like I said, like I've been telling Scotty that, like, I have been having like some fucked up dreams because Mm -hmm. of this show. Right. Um, So, yeah, just know that going into it. If you're somebody who's like, I don't like scary things, like, I'm going to say watch the pilot. I would say to me, it, it, I don't find it scary. Like yeah. like you said, there are moments, there are probably moments that are scary. There's definitely a creepy vibe to mm-hmm. most of it, but it's more, it's unsettling. It's disturbing yeah. and unsettling. Yeah. Um, there's not like jump scares. I mean, there's maybe a couple, but like, it's not built around that. No, no. And it's not like super like there's a little bit of gore, but it's not like mm-hmm. yeah, just what listen, listen, listen to my words. Just watch the damn show. Okay. Yeah. And then you can come and talk to Scotty and I about what you think the classification of this show is. All right. right? Just do what I tell you to do. <laughs> have you found, do you have any, have you found any replacement shows? No, not at all. <laughs> um, you know, that's why I was telling you earlier today that I've had to start rewatching Jane the Virgin because I was like, well, yeah. you know, I'm empty inside. Yeah. Um, <laughs> although I, I, I will I will say that like reading Mexican Gothic has been mm-hmm. a nice little transition piece of, you know, content that I can devour. Yeah, maybe we because sh- uh, I think in, by the time the next we're, we're both reading that book. Uh, yeah, it's a, I guess it's a horror novel. It's a Sylvia Moreno Garcia. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very, it's very gothic. Mm-hmm. I will probably be done by the time the next, our next episode comes out. So maybe we'll talk about it a little bit more. It is great. Yeah. And it is kind of a good odd companion piece tonally to yellow jackets. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's it's the not thing. the it has same. Nothing to do with yellow jackets. No. It's not the same, but like you said, tonally, um, mm-hmm. it kind of scratches a little bit of that yellow jackets. Right. Itch. Another show. So I found my replacement show, although I I'm not going so far as to put it on the level of yellow jackets, mm-hmm. certainly not in terms of like addictiveness, mm-hmm. but it's pretty great. It's a Netflix show. It is a horror show. It's called archive 81. 
I've been seeing a lot about that. Yeah, I'm about halfway through it. It's kind of like everything I love. Like it's a very slow burn, Mm -hmm. sort of supernatural, but it's also got like a lost video, lost films kind of aspect to it. Okay. Very claustrophobic. It's very much like the type of style that I would go for back when I was making films. Interesting. Um, So um, that is one I would, uh, if you're a horror fan or if you're a Yellow Jackets fan, I would give that a shot. Maybe check that out. It's not as, uh, like I said, it's not as addictive maybe as Yellow Jackets. Um, Uh It's much more broody in terms of the tone. But it is, I'm actually finding that one genuinely frightening. In a way that Yellow Jackets actually isn't. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I also wanted to say, you know, you were talking about German expressionism, right? Mm -hmm. Last, last, not last week, last episode. Last episode. And the new Macbeth came out with Denzel Washington and Joel Cohen directed Francis McDormand. And everybody's saying that that is, it's the uh, German expressionist version of of that yeah i've also heard widely i've heard some people that are like oh my god it's brilliant it's fantastic and i've also heard other people that were like i did not like it okay we'll have to check it out because that's one i'm curious about it's it's joel cohen it's his first movie without his brother so i'm just curious on that level yeah yes Uh, okay all right well should Um, we should we get to it i think so okay well so wait hold on i have to ask you because i don't know what your story is Mm -hmm. is your story scary uh i would go ahead and lock your doors and windows okay give me just a sec put on the theme music Okay, so uh, y'all locked up. I'm ready to go. Ready to go. Yes. So um, first, I need to start with a, I guess, first I'm going to say, like, we both have, like, a French thing. Somewhat, yes. Yeah. At least least a French French connection. connection. Not a literal (laughs) French connection, not the movie, but, you know. (laughs) Um, And I'm kind of glad yours is second, because from what I little I know of your story, it's not particularly like a dark story, right? Nope, not at all. So, yeah, it'll be a nice palate cleanser for mine, because mine's pretty fucking grim, actually. (laughs) So, I'm going to start with just a general content warning. Uh, Real fast, how -hmm. many times did you switch topics in between last the last episode we did? (laughs) This This is the fourth one I went. Awesome. Okay. Okay, so quick content warning. This involves suicide Mm. and murder and uh, particularly uh the murder of children i'm Mm. not gonna go into like super gory detail but just uh proceed with caution okay and then we're gonna start with uh i'm like good and i leave (laughs) we're gonna start with the cold open great so let's go back to october october 6th actually of 1994 Okay. A Swiss ski chalet in the like the village of Freiburg, Switzerland, just mm-hmm. went up in flames. Ooh. So the firefighters, the police, they descended. They were putting it out. They were thinking it was probably some sort of freak accident. But mm-hmm. then they got word that almost simultaneously, another ski chalet, this in the town of Valais, also was on fire. Okay. So once uh, they managed to get the fire out, this is in Freiburg, they went in to assess the damage and kind of see if they could figure out what happened. And they were stunned at what they found. So inside this Freiburg chalet, they found an underground chapel with a, quote, dramatic arrangement featuring walls of mirror and crimson curtains. They also found either 22 or 23, sources vary, uh, Uh dead bodies. 
many of whom were either shot or smothered to death before the fire. Nine of the dead were men, 12 were women, and one was a 12-year-old boy. Most of the dead were wearing ritualistic robes and their heads were wrapped in plastic. At least 19 of them were shot. And then in Valais, in the other ski chalet, they found Mm -hmm. another 25 dead bodies. What? Um, Now, this all happened two days after the ritualistic stabbing murder of an infant in Quebec. What the fuck (laughs) is this story that you're telling me? uh, Murder of an infant along with the apparent executions of that infant's family. This is the story of the Order of the Solar Temple. What? This is actually one I've wanted to do for a while, but I've kind of held off because it's, I mean, as you can tell, it's pretty fucking grisly. Oh. Um, okay, so my sources, Wikipedia, as always, an article, kind of a, an article from the time period from the New York Times, 48 insect are killed in grisly ritual in Switzerland. <sighs> also, uh, articles from filmdaily.com, from ranker.com, Vox Space, uh, swissinfo.ch, encyclopedia.com, and a news video from the CBC, uh, like Canadian Broadcasting System. Okay. So let's talk about the Order of the Solar Temple. It was, uh, as as I'm sure you can guess at this point, it was an apocalyptic death cult. Okay. Uh, It was uh, that the the headquarters were established in Geneva in 1984. It was founded by two guys. Uh, One's name was Joseph DeMambro. Okay. And Luc Jorette. I believe both of them were French. I did not find a lot of biographical information on Luc Jorette, uh, but here's just a little bit about Joseph de Mambro. So he was born in rural southern France. He didn't go to college, and as a young man, he was employed as a clockmaker and a jeweler. He was born and raised Catholic, but he began dabbling in occultism in his early 20s. And then in January of 1956, he joined an American-based Rosicrucian group called the Ancient and Mystical Order of the Rosicrucius. What does that mean? So let's talk Rosa- about... Okay. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm... I'm uh... One step ahead of you. Okay. <laughs> so Rosicrucianism. I'm not gonna do. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this because it's um it's it's a vast vast topic. Okay. Uh, but Rosicrucianism. It's a spirit. It's a series of spiritual and cultural movements that rose in Europe in the 17th century. It was developed after three anonymous texts were published in Germany that claimed the existence of an unknown esoteric order called the Order of the Rosy Cross. And supposedly this Order of the Rosy Cross kept like arcane and mystical knowledge. And so the three texts were, the, these are the English translations. So these are the English translations. The texts were the fame of the Brotherhood of R.C. This is from 1614. The confession okay. of the Brotherhood of R.C. That's from 1615. And I believe RC means Rosy Cross. And then the chemical wedding mm-hmm. of the Christian Rosy Cross Anno, 1459, that's from 1617. So these three books that claim to tell the story of a German doctor and mystic philosopher who, in the first uh, couple books, he's identified as Father Brother CRC, later as Christian Rosenkreuz, which essentially means the Rose Cross. He was supposedly right. born in 1378 and lived for 106 years. And then after studying under various Middle Eastern masters, he came back to Europe and founded the Rosicrucian Order around 1407. This is the story. Okay, It's real okay. unclear whether this guy ever actually existed. Um, mm. So during this Christian Rosencruz's lifetime, the order was supposedly restricted to just eight members, all of whom were doctors and, quote, bachelors of vowed virginity. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I'm thinking is like 1400s version of incels, maybe. 
Maybe. <laughs> okay. I mean, I don't know. You know, editorializing a little. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then these eight members supposedly took an oath to heal the sick without payment and to maintain the secret fellowship. And then they were supposed to replace this Christian Rosencruz once he was dead. Okay. Um, and then the movement or this order went like underground. Okay. So no one supposedly no one even knew it existed until these three texts were written like 200 years later. The doctrine of the order was built on, quote, esoteric truths of the ancient past, which concealed from the average man, provide insight into nature, the physical universe, and the spiritual realm. The text didn't elaborate on that, but they did reference everything from like the Kabbalah to alchemy to I think even some like Hindu teachings to Christian mysticism. It's sort of, it was even at the time and largely believed now that these texts are a hoax. Oh, okay. Um, Even the manifestos themselves claim to be allegorical. One of them says, quote, we speak unto you by parables, but we willingly bring you to the right, simple, easy, ingenious exposition, understanding, declaration, and knowledge of all secrets. So like, long story short, we're talking, this is like fucking Illuminati shit. Yeah. It's like the Masons. you know, secret societies, like mm-hmm. all of this stuff. And it all gets real like tangled together. And definitely there's a crossover between the Rosicrucian supposed secret societies and like the Freemasons. Okay. Oh, um, okay. Now, again, a lot of this is stuff that's known from like people on the outside. So it's like a lot of rumor and conjecture and kind of mythology around these groups. Okay. Okay. So let's get back to Joseph DeMombro. So DeMombro, he remained a member of this ancient mystical order of the Rosicrucius until 1969. He was even named the head of a lodge in Nimes, France. So mm-hmm. like the Masons, they, they're kind of organized around these lodges. Mm-hmm. And then in 1970, he gave up his business, which I think he was a psychologist. Um, he gave up his Creepy. business. Yeah, and, uh, and he became a full-time new age lecturer. And then in 1973, he founded the center for the preparation of the new age in Anamuse, France. And then three years later, created a commune called La Pyramide in Geneva. La Pyramide evolved into something called the Golden Way Foundation. Okay. So he was described by people who knew him as a, quote, confident trickster who made a successful career out of masquerading as a psychologist. Yikes. Began to claim that he was a representative of the, quote, great white brotherhood, which he said were, quote, evolved beings that the theosophists claimed guided the evolution of the human race. So just a little little theosophy. Again, I'm not going to go down this road too far because it's a big vast topic but theosophy was like a new religious movement it was established in the late 19th century by a russian immigrant it was in the u.s uh her name was helena blavatsky Mm, um so like people have probably heard of madame blavatsky that's like there's a fairly famous name in occult circles um this theosophy movement that she created became the foundation for much of like what it will you would call modern occultism Mm. um so theosophy taught that there was an ancient and secret brotherhood of spiritual adepts known as the masters who are based in Tibet and who have cultivated great wisdom and supernatural powers. And then who are now communicating to like the masses of the human race through Blavatsky's teachings. Um, So, you know, you're making the the appropriate face. Okay. Good. 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 (laughs) Um, Now there are, I've actually met, like I I've had a couple of friends who are like avowed theosophists. Like this is a movement that still exists today. So if you're a theosophist out there, I'm sorry. Like if my tone is a little, (laughs) 
skeptical, but I mean, what can I say? I'm skeptical. Right. Um, so anyway, the stated purpose of this Golden Way Foundation, which was created by uh, DeMombro, was to forge connections between people involved in different occult disciplines and then like unite them into like one single overall occult theology. Okay. He claimed that he was the reincarnation of Moses, as well as the reincarnation of an, of an Egyptian pharaoh named Akhenaten. Can you say that you're, can you do that? I mean, apparently. <laughs> if you're Joseph de <laughs> I don't think yeah, there's any rules with reincarnation, like, or claims of reincarnation. I guess that's true. Okay. Yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah. But I, what's one thing I love about these cult leaders is it's never like, I was a shoemaker and no. you know, it's always like i was moses or, right i was joan of arc i was exactly yeah yeah it's like what do they call not this all, not everybody can be joan of arc bitches <laughs> like you were a cobbler i'm sure yeah. <laughs> so anyway so he, this guy who claims he's moses and an old egyptian pharaoh mm-hmm. um he met this luke jurette um, now, Luke Jarrett, like I said, I didn't find a lot of biographical information on him. But at this point, he was a popular new age and like holistic health speaker. Um, this is like the early 80s. This is that like period post the 60s through the 70s and the early 80s where you're getting these like new religious and new age movements, some of which are like, you know, sort of fine, but like some of which were real fucking weird and toxic. Yeah. Like it's kind of like, you know, I mean, even the Manson family was kind of part of this way. Gosh, that's true. There was a big rush. Well, because like that kind of stuff. You know, this was a worldwide, well, at least particularly like in the Western world phenomenon, because you had the like you know, the French, uh, you know, the, the, the French youth were kind of in revolt the same way the Americans were. Right. And so it was like throwing all, off all these like old Catholicism orthodoxy, you know, and it's like, we're finding, you know, this is the age of Aquarius. We're finding these new religious. Movements. How dare you? <laughs> I mean, don't blame me. Blame the hippies. Like, they were the ones who were calling it that. I mean, they even wrote a song called the age of Aquarius. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so this is kind of like part of that whole wave. And this is why you saw like all these cults and shit popping up in like the seventies and early eighties. Right. So Dumambro and Jurette, they met. And then uh, Dumambro invited this Jurette to come and lecture at this Golden Way Foundation. Now, Jurette was already a member of another cult group called the Renewed Order of the Temple. Um, But they got to talking. They sort of had like a bro connection, I think. Uh (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And they found that their like general philosophy and beliefs kind of overlapped, you Mm -hmm. know. So they decided to join together and the Golden Way Foundation essentially became the Order of the Solar Temple. Okay. Dumambro was in charge of like sort of crafting all of the rituals of the group while Jarrett, who was kind of more the public figure, he was going around and like recruiting people. So let's talk a little bit about their beliefs. Okay. So they saw themselves as like a continuation of the 14th century Knights Templar. Their goal, their stated goal was to establish, quote, correct notions of authority and power in the world. That sounds terrifying. That's pretty ominous. They believed in the primacy of the spiritual over the temporal. Okay. They wanted to help prepare humanity for the second coming of Christ. Okay. They thought this time would appear to us as a solar God King which is why I think they're called the Order of the Solar Temple. Okay. They wanted to unite all Christian churches and Islam together to greet this new solar god king. Notice how they leave out the Jews. Just throwing that out there. I mean, not that I'm complaining. 
Just saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're also somewhat influenced by Aleister Crowley. I'm not going to, again, kind of like Theosophy, I'm not going to go super deep into Crowley, but he was another big occult figure from the 1800s, kind of through the early 20th century. His movement was sort of considered the Thelema movement. I think that's what it's called. It's not exactly the same as Theosophy, but like with all these occult groups, there's lots of overlap. I've tried to read a bit of Crowley's ideas and i find it completely impenetrable like i have no Mm. idea what that dude was talking about he's sort of most famous for i think i'm gonna get the quote right at least this is a paraphrase where he says um do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law which basically is like throwing aside christian morality and do what you want which you know (laughs) i'm okay i get the appeal i guess (laughs) (laughs) i'm so you're like like 10 minutes into your story and I'm already so fucking tired of these dudes. Yeah. Like I, I, the thing that bothers me about these cults is that nine times out of 10, it's dudes being like, Hey, what if we were in power? And I'm like, that's not, you're not subverting. Anything. A, you're already in power. B, you're, yeah, just, you're, ar- you're just trying to get laid. Yeah. Like it always like, comes down to that. Yeah, that's and that like you're not looking to like change anything. You're not looking no. to do anything any differently. It's just that you want to be in charge. You and... want to be in charge. You want to get laid. You I want know, just, to serve yeah. your ego. Like yeah. it, it and I just find is. it tiresome. Yeah, and that's why I think like as much as I was being a little skeptical earlier about theosophy, at least like the the leading figure of theosophy is a woman. Was a woman Helen Helena Blavatsky. Okay, um, which maybe I'll give it that it's like i find theosophy like when i get into it i'm like i don't understand it but i i find it less ominous and creepy than some of these other groups yeah uh so yeah (laughs) um sorry sorry to interject with my mini rant i just had to make a blanket statement about i'm I'm here for the mini rants so (laughs) now here's where things get real tricky for me okay um so this order of the solar temple they also incorporated aspects of the christian identity movement and if you've never heard of christian identity it's it's a racist and anti-semitic belief system that claims Mm. that the celtic and germanic peoples of europe were the true Hebrews and descendants of Abraham, and that the Jews, or what we know of as the Jews today, mm-hmm. are demonic usurpers. So again, and, and this this is where you struggle to, with. It. Yeah, I, I struggle with it. I uh, I have let, let me just say I, I have, bump up against it. I bump up. I have some mixed feelings. I have some mixed feelings. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it also incorporated aspects of like new UFO religions, a lot of new age beliefs. It adapted a bunch of Masonic rituals. And they were basically like pulling in a little bit of everything. Okay. They're just like sort of weird ass secret society. Now, Jarrett in particular wanted to attract like wealthy and influential members. And so he was going, it's kind of like what I think Scientology did, like going and like really like going after like the political elite, celebrity, mm-hmm. rich people. But this is a secret society. So to this day, people don't really know who got involved. Okay. I've seen different estimates of like total worldwide membership at this time could have been in the couple thousand, but we really don't know. Okay. But it is definitely rumored that some powerful and rich Europeans were like secret members. Okay. Now, by the late 1980s, Jurette's lectures, he, he was kind of, like I said, it sounds like he remained kind of the public face. DeMombro kind of stayed in the background. Mm, that's um, scary. 
Yeah, well, both of these guys are pretty scary. Jarrett's lectures began to take on this apocalyptic tone. Okay. He started predicting, quote, catastrophic upheavals that would threaten the existence of the planet. Yeah, and it sounds like mostly like environmental upheavals sort of being wrought by humans. Mm. So he's an early uh, climate activist. Um, you know. <laughs> on the bright side. On the bright side. He was side. an early climate activist. <laughs> yeah. So ahead of the curve on that, at least. But his claim was that only members of this cult would survive. And in fact, even then, it was only going to be like select privileged members of the group. Um, <sighs> and so whereas DeMombro was going around telling people he was Moses reincarnated, uh, you want to take a guess who Jarrett claimed to be reincarnated from? Jesus. Exactly. Yes! Right on the money. <laughs> so you got Moses and you got Jesus in the same oh, little cult. I mean, great. score, right? Yeah. Um, I hate these people. <laughs> oh, well, just wait. They're, they're very hateable. Um, <laughs> like they, like I, I'm so bothered by them that like at this point they haven't really even done anything yet. And I'm already like, I'm sick of your bullshit. Yeah. Well, um, I'm not going to disabuse you of right. that opinion. Great. Good. <laughs> it's good to know that my, you know, yeah, my red, my red flags are finally tuned. Yeah. Yeah. You're on, you're on the right, you're on the right track there. So, yeah, so Jarrett was saying he was Jesus. He also, part of his teachings were that, like I said, only these privileged members of the order would ultimately survive this catastrophe coming to the earth. Okay. And he said that these privileged members would ultimately, quote, leave their earthly bodies and then would meet again after their death voyages, quote unquote, uh, where they would meet up again at the star Sirius. Now, to get there, they would have to, quote, transition through fire. Okay. So um, you kind of see where this is going, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's like real, like it's real Heaven's Gatey, too. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like, we leave our earthly body to go up into space kind of thing. Yeah. The space god. Um, Which also, wa- okay, mm-hmm. yep, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm on board. <laughs> Just tell me where to sign up. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so here's how here's how the Order of the Solar Temple was structured. They had a central authority called the Synarchy of the Temple. All the members of the Synarchy were secret. Mm-hmm. Um, the top 33 members of the Synarchy were known as the, quote, Elder Brothers of the Rosy Cross. They were headquartered in Zurich. Um, and then they formed all these different lots. So, like, again, they're kind of modeling themselves after the Masons. And by the way, I'm not saying, like, Masons and these fuckers are the same. I know there were a lot of, like, Masons out there who was just like, your grandpa might be a Mason or something. Right. But they were, like, kind of modeling themselves after Masonic lodges. So, mm-hmm. They created these lodges all over the world, primarily in Switzerland and France, and then in Quebec, but also in Martinique and Australia. Um, They had several grades and levels that you had to work through to like ascend through and to become like one of the elite. Okay, so it's it's an MLM. It, exactly basically yeah um yeah. so so the earliest the the lowest level is the brothers of parvis and then after that is the knights of the alliance and then eventually you work your way up to becoming part of the brothers of the ancient times okay and this is like real fucking lord of the rings shit yeah they were also involved kind of secretly with a lot of different clubs and organizations which were then like offering jurettes and demombros teachings to like the general public okay during the ceremonies they wore crusader style robes because if you remember they saw themselves as like a continuation of the knights templar 
Right. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering how how successful they were at converting Muslims to their cause. But anyway. I- <laughs> <laughs> I'm also just thinking of right like at the end of uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade they go in and there's like the one knight who's like in his chainmail yeah. and everything and like that's what I'm picturing. Yeah, I mean it's like kinda, a crusty old dude. It's like the hippie version of that dude. It's okay. like the pervy hippie version of the guy <laughs> from the Last Crusade. <laughs> great, 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 great. Yeah. So, and then they also like built all these rituals around this sword that DeMambro had that he said was a genuine artifact of the Knights Templar. And he claimed it had been given to him a thousand years ago in a previous life because of course. Okay. So let's talk about how things started to go. If they weren't fucked up enough, things started to go downhill. Okay. So uh, some of the members started becoming real concerned with Jurette's behavior. This is kind of by the early 90s because he was being increasingly erratic. And I couldn't really find any like specifics about what they meant by erratic. Mm. But he also shockingly became sexually obsessed. (laughs) I know. Like hold the phone. This never happens with cults, right? (laughs) Just... Go out and get a personality and get laid yeah. that way. Yeah. Well, uh, like I said, incels. You know. God, I just, okay. Ambro is actually married, by the way. I'm not sure about Jorette. I just, I am so sorry. <laughs> I, I can't. Why are dudes so fucking basic? Like, why? <laughs> why are men so basic? I mean, like, I wish I had a good answer for you. <laughs> I just, you know, like, I can't believe that we sit here and we talk about, you know, how women are so basic with their fucking pumpkin spice lattes and shit. And I'm like, the second men get any kind of power, the only thing that they can think to do with it is F. Like, I can't. Yeah, they just, they just want to put their dick in something or someone. You know, and I'm like, put your dick, again, get a personality and, and there'll be plenty of people that you can put your yeah you know, your P in like, they'll, I just, they'll, be, they'll be happy I, to take the P. Yes. Just become a normal <laughs> human being. <laughs> well, Ugh. that's not the way these guys went. So I, apparently okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's I, I was, I was hoping for some of these rants. I thought, yeah. So before every ritual, Jarrett would initiate sexual encounters with basically any of the women of the cult who just happened to be in the room. Of course. And he claimed that these encounters were necessary because they're what provided him with the strength to perform the ceremonies. I hate everything. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Now, lest you think Jarrett was the bad one, like, you know, a good cop, bad cop situation. DeMombro was also up to this shit. He was exerting power over members. He was looking to acquire both money from them. He was demanding a lot of like donations Uh and of course, sexual favors. The two of them would then go in like, you know, because a lot of people would join as couples, husbands and wives, whatever would join. And then they would go in and tell these couples, you guys are cosmically incompatible. Um, So we're going to break you up. And uh, and then they go to these newly single, quote unquote, heavy air quotes, Mm -hmm. uh, women and be like, okay, you, you can come with me now. Right. Your vagina is cosmically linked to my my dirty, nasty, hippie cult peen. It's so 
It's terrible. I know. I, I mean, again, like content warnings across the board. I should have said just content warning about like men being basic and terrible too. Um, <laughs> now, this is where things start to get scary. Okay. Okay. I'm like ready. it's bad enough, but it's sort of, we're, we're in standard creepy cult. Now we're going to go to murdery creepy cult. Okay. Okay. I'm they ready. enlisted this guy, another cult member who I'm, I'm not going to get his name pronunciation right. Uh, he was a French Canadian guy, I believe. His name was Tony Dutois. Um, They had him mount, go to like different lodges and temples and mount these projection devices like secretly hidden in the walls because the idea was they wanted to project these illusions to convince people that they're watching supernatural manifestations. Mm -hmm. Um, But this Dutois kind of like, I think he went along with it for a minute and then he went around and told everyone like, hey, this is a lie. Like this is fake. Okay. Did not go over well with Jurette and DeMombro because once Dutois revealed the lie, many members of the Order of the Solar Temple were outraged that they had been manipulated. And a lot of them Rightly started so. to. Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of them started to leave the cult. So do you think that, you know, DeMombro and Jurette were like, yeah, maybe we should rethink our uh, approach here? Uh, yeah. I'm sure they did not. So here's how they respond. And this Great. is again content warning, murder, child murder. Ooh, okay, okay. Uh, they decided so DeMombro pronounced that Dutois' three month old baby son was the Antichrist and had to be killed because he was being born into the order to undermine DeMombro's goals. <sighs> so this was in Quebec. The baby was killed, was stabbed six times with a wooden stake, and both Dutois and his wife Nikki were executed. They were stabbed eight times with a wooden stake. So this is, like I said at the very beginning, this was just a couple mm-hmm. days before everything fell apart. Mm-hmm. Two days later, on October 6th, DeMombro gathered 12 of his closest followers. They performed like a ritual last supper. And then this led to the suicides and the mm-hmm. murders. So, like I said, it was mainly three locations. These two locations in Switzerland where they found 23 bodies in one place, 25 in the other. Mm-hmm. And then over in Quebec, there was another wave of mass suicides and murders. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's real hard to tell from what I was reading who voluntarily allowed themselves to be killed and who was mm-hmm. just killed because they mm-hmm. were there, you know, kind of Jonestown yeah. style. So in total, uh, 15 of the order's inner circle committed suicide by poison. 30 more were killed uh, either by being shot or by being smothered. Uh, Another eight died by other means. Many of the victims in Switzerland were found in that underground chapel. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like I said, they were dressed in ceremonial robes. They were found arranged in a circle with their feet together and then their heads kind of on the outside of the circle. Mm -hmm. Their heads were wrapped in plastic bags. Most of them had been shot in the head. It's theorized that the plastic bags symbolized the ecological disaster that Jurette had been predicting. Um, It's also, they think that the plastic bags may have been part of the the order's rituals and that the victims actually put them over their heads voluntarily. Mm -hmm. I didn't find names of the people who were killed, but among the dead were a Swiss mayor a prominent Swiss journalist, um, DeMombro's own daughter, who he had claimed was a divinely inspired, quote, cosmic child. And of course, Jurette and DeMombro were also dead. At the location where their bodies were discovered, police found an audio tape that had recorded the following conversation between Jurette and DeMombro. Mm -hmm. So DeMombro says, people have beaten us to the punch, you know. Jurette says, well, yeah, Waco beat us to the punch. 
And then DeMambo says, in my opinion, we should have gone six months before them. What we'll do will be even more spectacular. Wow. Yeah. Wow. The, yeah. It's, it's, it's insane. So the Quebec police seized the records after the discovery, like they seized a bunch of records that showed that just from the Quebec members, they had personally donated over 1 million Canadian dollars to DeMambro. This wasn't the end of it. A year later, um, December of 1995, on December 23rd, 16 bodies were found arranged in a star formation in the Vercors Mountains of France. It appeared that two of the members shot the others and then committed suicide by lighting themselves on fire. Um, one of these one of these dead people was a woman's downhill skier named Edith Bonlio, who had competed in the 1956 Winter Olympics in Italy. Um, March 23rd, 1997, five more members committed suicide in St. Casimir, Quebec. It was basically two couples and like one other person. Mm -hmm. Uh, the small house they were in had gone up in flames. Then police went in, they discovered five charred bodies, which included the two couples. One of the couple's three teenage children were found in a shed behind the house. They were drugged, but otherwise unharmed. What? Oh, yeah. Okay. In the late 1990s, uh, the French police arrested a guy named Michel Tabashtik. Uh, mm -hmm. He was an internationally renowned Swiss musician and conductor. He was suspected of being the order's current leader. This is after, of course, Jarrett and Demombro's death. So they had met, Demombro and Jarrett met Tabashnik back in their Golden Way Foundation days. He ultimately would go on to testify against a bunch of other cult members who were charged with murdering children. He himself was indicted for participation in a criminal organization. This is in France mm -hmm. and murder. He was put on trial in 2001, but he was later acquitted. French prosecutors then appealed and retried him in 2006. I guess you can do that in France. There must no double jeopardy, I guess. Right. Um, but he was again acquitted. In the end, a total of 74 cult murders were murdered or committed suicide across at least three countries. Mm. It's possible. I mean, I think it's believed that the order of the solar temple still exists today but since it's a secret society the membership is unknown uh there have not been i mean this i think the last known murders and suicides were in the late night we're in 1997 mm -hmm. uh but authorities fear that there may be others out there who will ultimately follow in their leader's footsteps <sighs> and that is the story of the order of the solar temple uh yeah god that's awful yeah it's 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 i'm not sure it's actually worse probably than the uh black metal murder story but <laughs> a little more straightforward it's pretty fucking bad and like i said i've wanted to do it for a while but i've kind of held off because it is so grim and i just decided to go for it what's fascinating to me is like i, I mean i remember 1994 very clearly mm -hmm. like i mean i was in, i was a junior in high school mm -hmm. i don't remember this story at all yeah, i stumbled I on it maybe five years ago yeah, I don't think I've ever heard of this before. Yeah, it must not have gotten a lot of play in the United States. Well, when was when was Waco? Same year. Or Waco might have been the year before. I think Waco was 93. I mean, it's possible that that's why. You know, yeah, they were like, we're fucking dealing with our own cult shit. Yeah, like, exactly. And we we had, can't worry about what the Canadians are doing or whatever the fuck. The fucking militia movement and all that stuff going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Ugh. God, look, just don't get involved with cults. I don't, I, I wish I could give you better advice than that, but just <laughs> stay away from the cults because they're basic. And they never end well. 
And they never end well. I mean, it literally, it's not like any, but I mean, it, it, it's not like anybody has ever been like, and I joined a cult and honestly, like we just get together and we like pick up litter on the weekends and right. well, you know, and look, have a really good time. And we should like, let, let's make a slight distinction between occultism, which mm-hmm. is, you know, theosophy, Thelema, Wicca, right. you know, paganism. That's not the same as being in a cult. Like, <laughs> <laughs> people people like to conflate the two like i i have right. friends who are wicca i have plenty of friends like i said i've known a couple of people who call themselves theosophists i'm real confused by them but uh-huh. like, more power to them they're very nice people the problem with cults is the de- the definition of a cult is the the kind of the cult of personality around the strong ego of a leader or right right i'm just saying like if you get into something and they either a ask you to start paying a lot of money because soon you'll make a lot of money or b start saying hey you need to have sex with the main person in charge just be like cool yeah. cool cool i've i you know what i remember that i've dipped I've double booked myself and then just get out of Dodge mm-hmm. and yeah. you, like block their numbers on your cell phone yeah. and just go about with the rest of your leave, life. Leave it alone. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you're, here, you're, are you'll my be, t- here are my tips to get out of a cult. Right. You'll be much better off. Don't follow an antler queen or. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> So I had to throw a little Yellow Jackets reference. In there. Yeah. Uh, once you guys watch Yellow Jackets, you'll understand that reference. Yeah. I so, mean, you'll figure it out in the first five minutes of the pilot. Yeah. Um, so there. Oh, my God. Okay. okay. So palate cleanser time. Let's move on. Yes. Palate <laughs> non-murdery cleanser. French story. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So, Scotty, I, I think you know this about me. I assume that you know everything about me. But I think you know <laughs> this about me for our, our audiences might not know. But I love an underdog story. Like mm-hmm. I fucking love like a scrappy gang of like <laughs> driven people, you know, going against all odds, taking I mean, on some kind of like, I rem- giant. I, was it you who like went on kind of a rant one night about how great a movie cool runnings is? <laughs> Apparently no, not. No, I don't think so. <laughs> It Ooh, is, in fact, action. a great, yeah, yeah it's a great movie. Um, oh, wait, hold on. Sorry, dropping stuff. Okay, but I, yes, I do love a good underdog story. I love a good sports underdog story. Mm-hmm. Um, Miracle, uh, yeah. the movie about the, uh, was it 1980? Yeah. Hockey team, a right. U.S. hockey team uh, at the Olympics playing against Russia. I'm God, like, I mean, I major mean, league, major one my, league, one of my favorite baseball movies. Yeah. There's a movie called accepted, which is a great, it has nothing to do with sports, but it's about a, a gang of kids that like, oh God, they've like their college dreams were kind of dashed. You know what I mean? No, like there was yeah. one kid who like, didn't get into college at all. There's another who like, she'd planned on going Ivy league, like the entire time she was growing up and then like, didn't get into an Ivy league school and just all sorts of cool stuff like that. I just, yeah. I love it. Even like, honestly, the oceans movies, like oceans 11 and all that stuff. I'm just like, yes, just give me, like I said, a scrappy group of people trying to like (laughs) take on the establishment and I'm, I'm all in. Um, so today I'm going to tell you about one of the best underdog stories ever. The judgment of Paris, 1976. 
All right, let's do All it. All right. So sources for this are uh, Wikipedia, Wine Enthusiast, NPR, Time Magazine, Smithsonian Magazine, and YouTube. Okay, so a little wine history, but I promise not a lot. Okay. Um, okay, so France has been producing wine since roughly the 6th century BC okay. uh, when Southern Gaul was colonized by the Greeks. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> um, wine as a drink has been around for thousands of years, but France yeah. really, France really like internalized wine as part of their civilization. And they're the ones that really investigated the art of winemaking. Yeah. And they're real snotty about it. Well, okay. Put a pin in that. Cause we're going to okay. come back to it. Um, I think before that people were just like, if you do some stuff to grapes, it'll turn into alcohol and you'll get drunk. I uh-huh. think the French were really the ones that were like, okay, but what if we like, what if we do this? What if they're grapes from here? What so if we do different stuff with the different grapes? Maybe their snottiness is earned. I mean, to be completely honest, their snottiness is 100% earned. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think if, I mean, I can't say that like nobody else would have thought of it, but they were looking at it and investigating it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were investigating the, the, the art of winemaking. Yeah. So during the middle ages, French French monks maintained the vineyards in France and they conserved winemaking practices and knowledge. The reason for this is that like monasteries had the resources, they had the security and the inventiveness to make a lot of wine, Uh not just for mass, but for profit as well. Right. Monastery wine was considered superior, mostly because the monks knew what they were doing. Yeah. Um, again, they weren't just like, oh, yeah. some grapes for a minute and this I'm, is cool. I'm assuming they had a lot of free time too. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> um, nobility developed vineyards, but the French Revolution led to the confiscation of most of those vineyards. Oh, yeah. So also an interesting thing to think about that like, I think a lot of people think of wine as like a bougie drink, mm-hmm. even though, I mean, technically all, I think all alcohol could be considered bougie depending on how you look yeah. at it, but wine was really coming from these monks who like didn't have anything, but right. you know, well, I think it's just cause it's like a lot of French names and stuff, but it's like, I don't know, go get it like a bottle of yellowtail for $4. That's not all that bougie. Yeah. France is also responsible for a lot of the grape varieties uh, that we mm-hmm. know, like Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Sauvignon Blanc, and Syrah. So France actually does have a bit of a right to be uppity about their place in the wine world. Sure. Former Time reporter George Tabor, I'm going to talk about him more later, but he said, quote, the French bamboozled the world into thinking that only in France could you make great wines, that only in France did you have the perfect climate, the perfect earth, the perfect grapes. France was on a pedestal. France was alone. <laughs> I am not here to say whether or not the <laughs> whether or not France bam- bamboozled the world. Um, but it is clear that they definitely felt one, some ownership over wine as like an industry and two, that they were producing a lot of really good wine. Yeah. So that's what's happening over in Europe, over in France. I'm going to zoom over to California now. Mm-hmm. Um, so California was actually pretty like lousy with grapes and vineyards early on. Uh-huh. Um, do you want to take a crack at why? Well, I mean, I would think the the climate. Yes. It, like, because I'm thinking Northern California where Napa is, if I'm not wrong, it's kind of on the same latitude as France. Other than that, I have nothing. 
it was because of all the mission towns. Oh, uh, okay. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of, lot of missions, lots of mission folks making wine. A lot, um, a lot, a lot of monks with free time. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, so records show that the first vines were planted in California in the late 1700s. Although there are some sources that say that like mid to late 1600s, okay. grapes were being planted in California. But these vines that were planted in the late 1700s, those vines were cultivated to produce wine used for religious purposes. Again, missions. Huh. Um, right. Pre-Napa Valley, most U.S. wine was being made in New York, Virginia, Ohio, and Missouri. I'm trying to imagine, like, again, just with the climate, New York doesn't seem like the place to be. Yeah, it's... I mean, I was like, well, no wonder American wine didn't take off. (laughs) And I, look, listen, I... lived in Virginia for a time. And I knew people in Virginia that were like, uh, that were from that area. And they were very like, no, Virginia, you can make great wine in Virginia. And I was like, no, (laughs) you can't. I've had Virginia wines. Like they're not. I've had Arizona wine. Like, you know, the, what's his name? Maynard James Keenan, the lead singer of Tool. Mm -hmm. He he owns a vineyard outside of kind of near Sedona called uh, Merkin Vineyards. And like, (laughs) I've heard a lot of people like, oh yeah, Maynard's wine is great. And then I went and tried it and I'm like, it's fine, but it's, I wasn't that yeah, that's the thing. I think that, like New Mexico wine that I've had is actually better. So. Well, and the thing is, is that like, you know, parts of New Mexico are not bad for growing mm-hmm. wine. You know what I yeah. mean? I had seen somewhere, it was, a, I think it was a Trivial Pursuit question that New Mexico was actually, wine has been out of like all of the U.S. territory, wine has been being made in New Mexico for the longest out of like, out of anywhere, I, California, you, New York. Everything. I think you told me that recently, and I, that, I think it's because that kind of blew it's, my I, mind. Yeah, and again, it's because of the missions. The, yeah. and, like monks up here were they, <laughs> they needed to do something. Yeah. Um, okay, well, they so, need that fucking communion line, man. Yeah, they do. Uh, so the father of Napa Valley is generally considered to be George C. Yunt. Uh, mm-hmm. He was an early pioneer and settler. Here's a weird sidebar about this dude. In early 1847, Yunt repeatedly dreamt of a group of struggling pioneers in deep snow, complete with like details of their appearances and their difficulties. This is right around the time that the Donner Party was stranded in the Sierra Nevada mountain range. Mm. Yeah. And he Aye. had, he had like multiple dreams about it. And he's, oh. yeah, he's actually, there are a lot of people who believe that Yunt was at least partially responsible for their rescue because he like got up and he was like, we got to do something. There's people that are stranded there. He like raised $500 for a, oh, that's like crazy. a search and rescue crew. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's so, like, that sounds like a story on its own. Like that's kind of amazing. Yeah. So that dude is widely considered to be the father of Napa Valley. He's mm-hmm. believed to have been the first person to grow grapes in Napa Valley around 1836. He's also the namesake of Yuntville. Yuntville. Hmm. I 
Don't quote me on my pronunciation there, but that's a pretty famous culinary town. It's the home of the French Laundry and Bouchon Bistro. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. What's his name? Uh, Got in trouble (laughs) there. Uh, (laughs) uh, Gavin Newsom. He was because during pandemic, he had his like fundraiser there and wasn't wearing masks and people were like yelling at him about it. Yeah. Those two restaurants are Michelin starred restaurants. Um, Mm -hmm. I have heard varying things about the quality of the French laundry. I've always wanted to go there just because it's, it's the French laundry. Um, so you don't plants his grapes, but it's actually a man named John Patchett who created the first vineyard Patchett planted his first vines in 1854. He started producing wine in 1857 and he constructed his cellar in 1859 in 1860. His wine got reviewed. Here is the review quote. The white wine was light, clear, brilliant and very superior indeed. His red wine was excellent. We saw superior brandy too. Mm. Patchett's winemaker was none other than Charles Krug, who is a Prussian immigrant who would later go on to found Charles Krug Winery. And that is the oldest winery still in operation in Napa Valley. I was going to say, I've heard of Charles Krug Mm -hmm. and I know very little about wine Mm -hmm. outside of Yellowtail. Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> your fucking yellowtail. Okay. When Napa Valley was getting started in the wine game, the grapes that were being planted, they weren't a specific grape variety. They were just field blends and they were called mm-hmm. mission grapes. Okay. But soon after that, stuff like Zinfandel and Petite Syrah get thrown in the mix along with other French, Italian, and German grapes like Grenache, Riesling, Malbec, Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Noir, Cabernet Franc, Muscat, Carmenere, Cabernet Sauvignon, and more. Mm. Um, Also during this time, Sonoma County is starting to get in on the wine game as well. The Corbell brothers actually began making the first champagne-style wines in Sonoma in the 1880s. So they're, you know, Corbell is doing their sparkling wine stuff over there. Yeah. By the end of the 1800s, there were more than 140 wineries in the area and several of them still exist today, which is pretty cool. Well, from, well, from what year? The late 1800s. Ah, that's impressive. That's yeah. So, so Napa Valley is like over there, you know, doing its thing and mm-hmm. like making their wine and everything. And of course, this would not be an underdog story unless tragedy struck. So let's get into it. All right. The first blow. Uh, mm. In the 1860s, California saw its first appearance of phylloxera, a root louse. It's a parasitic insect yeah. uh, that had made its way to the West from the East Coast. At the same time, it's also making its way to Europe. Europe. And this stupid little bug came very, very close to not only destroying Napa's wine industry before it even began, but destroying like wine. It's some people think that botanists, uh, like Victorian English botanists, brought phylloxera infested root cuttings back to England in the late 1800s. Mm. It devastated British vineyards before the little fuckers found their way to the mainland and they decimated European vineyards. Wow. Apparently, so phylloxera is native to the U.S. And so American vines are less susceptible to phylloxera than European rootstocks. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. I have heard that there are grape varieties that were lost 
or thought to be completely lost for good because of this infestation. Wow. In the 1890s, Phylloxera had hit Napa in full force. It killed nearly 80% of the grapevines. I think it killed 90% of the grapevines in France. Wow. Yeah. So there's a thing, God, I, I feel like I saw it's either called the rule of 15 or rule number 15 or something like that. The whole thing about it is, is that you won't know that you have a phylloxera infestation until 15 years after the bugs have started. Ooh, yeah. Then, then by then it's like way too late way too late. And apparently there's nothing you can do about it because, okay, I don't want to get into like the fucking like biology and (laughs) shit, but apparently phylloxera they're, like I said, they're root lice. Mm -hmm. So they get in there and they eat these little holes into the root system. And from there, what happens is that like fungus and stuff gets into the roots and you're just, you're, you're fucked. Right. And Um, you can't like, like you can't visually inspect the roots. Right. And so, and Again, my understanding of it is, is that there isn't anything that you can do about it. What I don't know for sure is if there isn't a pesticide for these little buggers, or Mm -hmm. if you can't use a pesticide on grapevines. Right. That part was unclear to me, but- Basically, these little bugs come in and they decimate the vineyards and they would continue to mess with Napa vineyards like well into the 1920s. Um, A lot of wineries had to turn to growing like walnuts or prunes to make ends meet. Mm. However, a few wineries did survive the plague just in time for prohibition. Oh, great. (laughs) <laughs> yep. So with the passing of the Volstead Act, which is also known as Prohibition, uh, mm-hmm. that was a nationwide constitutional ban on the production, importation, and sale of alcoholic beverages. It lasted from 1920 to 1933. Uh, yeah. This movement was led by pietistic Protestants, and it was a ban that was meant to heal what they saw as, quote, an ill society beset by alcohol-related problems such as alcoholism, family violence, and saloon-based political corruption. Mm, Uh, Spoiler alert, total failure. Yeah, as as I've said, like, this is why we had a mafia in this country. (laughs) Yes. Critics said that prohibition caused crime, lowered local revenue, and imposed, quote, rural Protestant values on urban America. Mm. That, to me, is such a burn. It has real, like, like <laughs> you're just a virgin who can't drive vibes. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Totally. Like, it's like, don't put your yokel values <laughs> on our new American country. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, like we're still having those fights today. I mean, we are. We 100% are. Yeah. Prohibition hit Napa Valley wine production really hard. It caused a lot of wineries to close their doors, as well as causing really intense damage to California's state and federal tax revenues. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones that did stay open, the wine wineries that did stay open did so with agreements to produce sacramental wine. So wine for religious services or by selling their grapes to home winemakers. This is a little bit of genius. I'm just going to say again, you know, talking about our our plucky upstarts here. So they would sell these things and I can't remember what they're called like raisin cakes or raisin pads or something. They weren't like shipping whole grapes. They were 
selling these like dehydrated things to home winemakers with instructions on how to make non-alcoholic wine. Mm -hmm. But what they did in the packaging was they were like, you have to use this to make non-alcoholic wine. To make your non-alcoholic wine, you'll want to be sure to not do. And then they basically (laughs) laid out the instructions for how to make alcoholic wine. That's fucking punk rock. Yeah, right? But they were like, listen, at all costs, avoid doing (laughs) A, B, and C. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to make real wine and nobody wants that. Yeah. Um, Okay. So so we've been hit, like Napa Valley has been hit by this bug plague. They got slapped with prohibition. And if that wasn't enough, the Great Depression hits in 1929. Sure. So, and of course, like nobody's buying wine right. <laughs> during the Great Depression. <laughs> a handful of wineries that survived the infestation, prohibition, and the Great Depression come out on the other side and like, honestly, nose to the grindstone. And mm-hmm. they were just like, let's do this thing. They're creating vintners groups and associations and all this stuff. They realize that they're stronger together than they are apart. Right. And they just, they get cracking. So Napa Valley's trucking along doing it's like American wine thing up to the 1970s. During this time, you know, so from like the, I, I want to say like 1940, 40s up until the 1970s. Most Americans were drinking, mostly what they were drinking is fortified dessert wine. And they really didn't know anything about the quote unquote expensive bottles of cab. Yeah. Like the expensive bottles of Cabernet Sauvignon and Chardonnay being made in the vineyards just north of San Francisco. I also (laughs) do want to say that at this time, expensive meant $6 a bottle. Wow. In case anybody doesn't know what fortified dessert wine means, because I didn't either. It means that it's that a distilled grape spirit like brandy or cognac has been added. Okay. I feel hungover just talking about that. Right. Cause that's like all sugar. Yeah. I just, it feels like mixing a spirit with a wine is just. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Okay. So at the time, the general worldview of wine was that there was three categories and it was the good stuff, which was French, the mm-hmm. very good stuff, also French, and then everything else. Right. This is so a quote like from the-, the Italians, the Argent- Argentinians, like a lot of people are making wine. No, 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 no. Like Italians are making wine at that point. Germans are making wine at that point, but that's like wine is kind of, yeah. I mean, people might be like making wine, but they're not like in the wine game. Okay. Interesting. Um, So this is a quote from the Smithsonian. Few doubted that anything could be finer than the vines of Burgundy and Bordeaux and those at the upper end of wine snobbery were unshakable Francophiles. Mm -hmm. So that leads us to the judgment of Paris, 1976. Okay. Um, a British wine expert, merchant, and champion of French wine named Stephen Spurrier is running a wine shop in Paris. Okay. Spurrier and his team spoke English, so they frequently had Napa Valley winemakers passing through with their wines in tow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> California wasn't viewed. California wine didn't exist, Spurrier says of the Napa <laughs> wines at the time. But yeah. Spurrier was game, and he would like taste test these Napa wines, and he was like, you know, these are. They're good. They're not, they're not bad. A woman named Patricia Gallagher. She was an American manager of Spurrier's Paris wine shop had tried the Napa Valley wines. And in 1975, she travels to Napa Valley to meet the vintners and to like sample their shit. Mm -hmm. She came back and she was like, yo, you 
gotta see what they're doing in California. And she suggests hosting a tasting of California wines in Paris to like mark. This is all, this is hilarious (laughs) to me. She suggests hosting a tasting of California wines in Paris to mark the bicentennial of the American revolution. Okay. (laughs) Like it's just hilarious to me. So Spurrier, feeling what he calls a sense of wine justice, (laughs) heads to Napa in April of 1976, and he collects six California Chardonnays. They were the 1973 Chateau Montalena, the 1974 Chalon Vineyard, the 1973 Spring Mountain Vineyard, a 1972 Fremark Abbey Winery, and a 1972 Vetercrest Vineyards. Oh, and one more. And a 1973 David Bruce Winery. He also collects six California Cabernet Sauvignons. They are 1973 Stag's Leap Wine Cellar, 1971 Ridge Vineyards, 1970 Heights Wine Cellars, 1972 Clos Duvai Winery, 1971 Maya Comis Vineyards, and 1969 Fremark Abbey Winery. So he's like, these are all like good, solid wines. I'm going to take them back. We're going to do a tasting. Spurrier then enlisted several distinguished French wine experts, including sommeliers from the best French restaurants in Paris, Mm. a highly regarded French winemaker, and Odette Kahn. She's the editor of the highly influential French wine review. And he's like, cool, let's do a thing. We're going to do a tasting. Mm Mm-hmm. And he reserves a room at the Intercontinental Hotel in Paris. At first, this was just supposed to be a tasting of the California wines. And then Spurrier has a light bulb moment. And he's like, what if instead of just tasting the Napa wines, we decide to include the top wines for Bordeaux and Burgundy and make the whole thing a blind test competition? Nice. Mm -hmm. At this point, everybody's like... (sighs) fine whatever the French are gonna win of course (laughs) yes absolutely they're totally like this isn't even going to be a competition it was it was a foregone conclusion that the French wines would demolish the California selections it was seen as such a non-event that only one journalist bothered to show up (laughs) time time magazine's George Tabor who I mentioned earlier right here's another quote from him everybody knows that French wines are going to win so why waste a day it's the giant and the little guy no one took it seriously Mm -hmm. As the only journalist who bothered to show up, Tabor had a ton of access, including a list of the order of the wines being served. Oh, okay. So he knew which were American and which were French mm -hmm, Uh at like, as it's being, as the thing is, is happening. Tabor said that at one point, one judge sampled a white, this is another quote, and then he smelled it after he tasted it and he held it up again. Ah, back to France, but it wasn't a French wine. It was a Napa Valley Chardonnay. Nice. Upon trying another wine, another judge said, this is definitely California. It has no nose after sampling a Batard Montrachet from France. (laughs) Um, Other great comments from that day include, quote, this is nervous and agreeable. (laughs) I so want to talk to our sommelier friend and be like, what the fuck does that mean (laughs) i know nervous and agreeable i always love like uh when i've been to like wine tastings and they'll pour the wine and then they're like this has the overtones of and i'm just like these are words but none of them make any sense to me (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, I have, I have been lucky enough to go to Napa Valley and have gone to some very cool wineries and that it was then that they were like, you'll notice, you know, notes of, uh, like this is, this is very peppery. You'll notice notes of like dried cherries and chocolate, tobacco, mm -hmm. apricots. And with those wines, Yes, I could tell that stuff mm -hmm. with the, you know, boxed wine that you get. No, no shame <laughs> against boxed wine, especially because it's very ecological. But some of the more like mass produced wines, mm. you're just like, I'm, I'm, I'm just you, drinking this to get drunk. Yeah, you get what you paid for. Right. Okay. So we've got, this is nervous and agreeable. Another quote said a good nose, but not too much in the mouth. <laughs> and another quote said this soars out of the ordinary mm. to literally everyone's surprise the two wines that had the highest scores were the 1973 chateau montalena chateau montalena chardonnay and the 1973 stag's leap cabernet sauvignon mm -hmm. the whites were tasted first and when it was announced that the Chateau Montalina had won, Spurrier and Tabor said it was like the French went after the Reds with a vengeance. <laughs> um, like they were like determined to redeem themselves. Yeah. Um, one easily identifiable non-French wine was given a score of two out of 20. Just because, like I said, they're snotty about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of them said worse than battery acid or something. <laughs> um, but those... <laughs> yeah, but those French wine judges were busted yet again when the topped mark red was shown to be the cab from Stag's Leap. Mm -hmm. When I say surprise, when I say that they were like, what? <laughs> I am not kidding. Odette Kahn, the editor from the French Wine Review, was so like, what the fuck, that she went and she tried to demand that she get her scorecard back because she <laughs> wanted to make sure that the world didn't know what her scores were. <laughs> I mean, just. Like, I would love to be the one reporter who is there just because right. like, the story is all mine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so <laughs> the Chateau Montalena and the Stag's Leap win. Like, and I, I like win solidly. Yeah. And of course, everybody, the French throw their berets up in the air and they're all, <laughs> they're all a Twitter. Um, the aftermath. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Gergic, he was the Croatian-born winemaker responsible for the winning Chardonnay. He didn't even know that there was a wine tasting until afterwards, and he didn't understand the significance of the tasting until the New York Times called to take his picture. Wow. Um, <laughs> he says, quote, I started dancing around the winery and singing in Croatian that I was born again. It was a miracle. <laughs> Nice. When Tabor, the reporter, called Jim Barrett, who was the general manager and part owner of Chateau Montalina, he's played by the always lovely Bill Pullman in the movie Bottle Shock, which is a highly dramatized retelling of these events. Oh, um, so when Tabor called Jim Barrett to tell him that his winery had won Best White, Barrett apparently said, quote, not bad for kids from the sticks. Mm. Post-tasting, Napa Valley officially became a legitimate player in the wine in winemaking. Yeah. Um, investments started flooding into the valley. So cool. Lots of money is coming in. Uh, mm -hmm. But also French folks who wanted to see what all the fuss was about also started flooding into Napa Valley. Interesting. And they liked what they found so much that they stuck around to make wine. 
The first vintage of Opus One, a collaboration between American winemaker Robert Mondavi and French winemaker Philippine de Rothschild, was produced in 1979. That wine. I I know Robert Mondavi. Mm -hmm. I know that name. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Robert Mondavi is like a big name in in Napa Valley. That wine, Opus One, prides itself on establishing the ultra premium category in the U.S. Mm. California's wineries now number over 3,000. In the 1970s, there were around 300. Wow. I mean, I know like Francis Ford Coppola got into it because like he's got his vineyard up there, probably like right around this time, actually. Yeah. Everybody just was like, cool. Yeah. Because like it was, you know, the whole thing of what's his name? Jim Barrett saying not bad for kids from the sticks. Like Napa Valley was the The sticks. It was, it was farm country. It was, you know, and they were out there, like the view from like the rest of the world was that they were kind of out there, like you know, playing at winemaking um, and just happened to actually be making like really damn good wine. Right. So the spanking that French wines got <laughs> was actually really good for French wines too, because it wow. it made them like get off their laurels and up their yeah. game as well. Lit a fire under their ass. I'm yeah. Sure. There was some backlash though. Spurrier was kicked out of wine cellars that he was once welcome in. Mm. He was also blamed for organizing France humiliation. Several judges were asked to resign from positions of honor and recognition. I feel Mm -hmm. bad for them now. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also just like, sorry, dude, they made good wine. Yeah. Like it was, it was good wine. George Tabor, the times report or the, sorry, the time magazine journalist, he remained relatively unscathed as at the time time magazine didn't publish bylines on stories like this one. Mm. Yeah. So it was just like, Interesting. you know, U.S. wines beat France. And like, everybody was like, yeah. nobody knows who wrote Written that. by staff or something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes, precisely. In 2006, Bill ACR 153 was adopted into California state legislature, proclaiming the 1976 Paris tasting an official historical event. Nice. Also in 2006, Spurrier organized a 30-year anniversary rematch. <laughs> California won. Again. Again, nice. Yep. <laughs> a bottle of the 1973 Chardonnay from Chateau Montalena and a bottle of the 1973 Cabernet Sauvignon from Stag's Leap now reside in the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. Awesome. Time Magazine said, quote, David's from all over felt power to take on Goliaths. It was a great democratizing moment for vintners and led to not just California getting in on the wine game, but other places as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the end of the movie Bottle Shock, the late great Alan Rickman, who plays Spurrier, has this lovely speech where he says, we have shattered the myth of the invincible French wine and not just in California. We've opened the eyes of the world. You mark my words. We will be drinking wines from well south america australia new zealand africa india china this is not the end this is just the beginning and that is the incredible story of the little wine region that could and the judgment (laughs) of paris 1976 that's awesome yeah yeah it's it's so funny because like i've never been to napa Mm -hmm. um and i've always like because like there there is uh and and i've wanted to take you there like there's the southern wine area of uh california it's like around solvang it's if you you guys have seen the movie sideways it's all based on this area yep and we're shot all around this area and like 
me and my LA friends will, will go up there sometimes. And yeah. that's, that's always a good time. This is a couple hours out of LA. Um, and I think I've always had a little bit of the like, because again, I like the underdog too. And that always feels like compared to Napa that they're the underdogs compared to Napa. Right. But it's kind of nice hearing like Napa were the underdogs too. Like, yeah. Yeah. Napa I mean, it wasn't really... always Napa. You know? Yeah. And like 100%, it is now like bougie AF, um, oh. you know, not, not to out myself as like, uh, <laughs> I guess fucking bougie as hell, but like, nah, it's really lovely out there. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's so pretty. There's incredible food out there. There's some like really, really cool, cool vineyards and wineries Mm -hmm. out there that you can go and tour. But yeah, it judgment of Paris is like really why Napa Valley turned into Napa Valley. If it hadn't, it would have probably stayed like solving. It would have, you know, it would have been like, like any little wine town. To be fair, it's not like solving. I mean, it's it's on the bougie side too. But mm-hmm. like what I like about that area is it's like, I, and I can't compare it to Napa, but like it still feels pretty rustic. Uh-huh. Um, and like the tasting rooms are pretty small. It feels a little undiscovered because like you go there, it's usually not super crowded. Right. It Again, it, it's right outside of Santa Barbara. So it's fucking gorgeous. Like, yeah. Uh, Solving's a fun little town because it's like a little Dutch village or what a Danish yeah. village. Yeah, um, you get all sorts of like like pastries and stuff. It's, it's yeah. a good time. I've always yeah. wanted to check out Napa, um, just never made it up there. Yeah, it's a it's a real cool place. That and Sonoma are both just like just cool places to go. And you definitely have your like large, you know, you have your like Mondavi, you have your Cola, mm-hmm. your, you know, these like massive wineries, but there's also other stuff that's like, there's a, a winery and the <laughs> like, you know, you've got the vineyards out there, but the winery itself, they built it in a mountain. Mm-hmm. So not like they built it into like they built it's in a mountain like wow. you have to go in a mountain <laughs> that's cool uh to do it and like they have all of these like awesome geodes that they found when they were excavating the place on on display and yeah you do the like tasting their tasting room is like in this fucking like james bond looking room in a mountain um yeah. it's it's really that's, really that cool. sounds like that sounds like a fun time it's a lot of fun and you know like the grocery stores are like dean and deluca's they're not yeah. like kroger's and stuff it's just it's right. a it's a really fun town to go and blow a lot of money in. i mean if i'm being completely honest yeah. um if anybody wants to check out the movie bottle shock like i said it is a highly dramatized (laughs) version of the events that took place with the judgment of Paris, but it's a good time. It sports uh, Alan Rickman as Steven Spurrier, Chris Pine in possibly the world's worst wig. Um, He plays he plays Bo Barrett, who is the son of Chateau, uh, sorry, Chateau Montalena general manager and part owner, Jim Barrett. Uh, Bill Pullman plays Jim Barrett Mm -hmm. Uh, and Lewis, Giambalvo plays George Tabor, okay. the uh, the journalist. There's also but like Eliza Dushku plays this like fucking hot, uh, <laughs> like 1970s Napa Valley bartender. It's awesome. a good time. Go and check yeah. it out. I don't think I've ever heard of that movie. I have to check that out. It's somebody on Twitter recently was like, "Is Bottle Shock the worst movie ever made?" And I was like, <laughs> "Yes, it is." And will I watch it every single time it's on? <laughs> yes, I will. Yeah, it's. Uh, if I'm forced to pick a wine movie, Bottle Shock is going to be my wine movie. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I saw Sideways, but Sideways is just, it's Sideways a, is fucking depressing, man. It's a good movie, but it's not. It's I a, mean, it's got yeah. funny stuff in it, but it's like typical Alexander Payne where it's funny and then you leave and you like want to cry. Yeah, I just keep thinking of, because it's Paul Giamatti, right? Paul Giamatti, yeah. And he's drinking that like incredible bottle of wine while he's like eating a fast food hamburger and he's, he's like pouring it into it. like a oh, paper cup. Yeah. Yes. And yeah, it's a good yeah. movie, but it's 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 one of those that's like, yeah, it, it's it's that like comedy slash tragedy. Yeah. Kind of tone. Uh, so Bottle Shock, just to let everybody know as well, the name Bottle Shock comes from an actual thing that happens to wines, which is where they essentially oxidize yeah. and they turn brown in the bottle. It's a huge plot point in the movie. The Chateau Montalena Chardonnay did experience bottle shock, but Mike Gergich, who was the guy who actually made the wine, was like, yeah, I know what this is and like, it's going to be fine. Yeah. Like it, it's it'll resolve itself by the time the wine gets to Paris. Okay. Well, he didn't know that because he didn't even know it was going to Paris, but he was like, yeah. this isn't a big deal. Right. Um, there's a whole thing where like, they think the wine's ruined and they have to, and then they go Chris Pine and the girl who's in it, who I'm not remembering, like have to go see her professor of like Vintner studies. And mm-hmm. um, it's, it's Bradley Whitford. Like it's oh, just a nice. great movie. Listen, yeah. just go watch Sounds it. Like and it's going to be terrible. Yeah. But- it's going to be a lot of fun. Just yeah. go watch it. Yeah. And like I said, yeah. that's that's the story of the little wine region that could. And I did want to just do a, a, like a little quick shout out to uh, like New Mexico wines. I am far from a wine expert, but I think we've got some good wine here. We, you know, and, I, Mexico- and I've heard from people who are like more like wine snobs, not from here, who have said, uh-huh. yeah, New Mexico has good wine. New Mexico wine is interesting because for a very long time, New Mexico wine was, uh, the wine that was being made here was really made for New Mexicans and it Mm -hmm. was focused on pairing well with really spicy food. Mm -hmm. So it was sweet, but there have been some wineries in the past couple of decades, I would say Mm -hmm. that have started to be like, but what if we actually like tried to make good, not just good New Mexican wine, but like good wine, not like wine to eat with your like green chili cheeseburger or whatever. Yeah, which is, I mean, is also valid. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm a fucking New Mexican. I love my green chili cheeseburgers. <laughs> Me and some friends went to the, so there's the, like the Bernalillo County Wine Festival mm-hmm. that happens in Bernalillo. And then there is another wine festival that happens in Albuquerque at Balloon Fiesta Park. Mm-hmm. And me and, a few, friends, me and yeah. a few friends went to that one and just look, here's what happened. (laughs) (laughs) This is what happened is that there was a local New Mexico winery that had a VIP tent. Uh And you, if you paid like $25, you would get into the VIP tent. You'd get a tasting of their wines. They had all of this food and stuff to go with it. Mm -hmm. Um, And we were like, let me also say that we discovered the VIP tent after we'd already been at the wine festival for a bit. So you're already a little... We're already in our little, caps. little fast. Yeah. yeah, we are. We're already in our well caps. marinated. We go in there and we're just we're living like kings in this <laughs> VIP tent, and we're just like, yes, we're eating like you know fucking chocolate dipped bacon and drinking like you know Pinot Noirs, and we're just it's like a it's 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 like a, a fucking bacchanal in there. Like we're just going nuts. We get out of there and we're all like, oh, because it's like <laughs> May, it's hot, it's yeah. like the afternoon, and we're like, we need to go swim. So we go swimming. We end up like going out for burgers after we swim. It remains to this day, like one of my perfect New Mexico days. Yeah. Um, that sounds great. Just, yeah, a really, really lovely time. So if you're in Albuquerque, I know.
know that one I think is in May. And I think the Bernalillo one is like over Labor Day weekend. I don't know about the, I think, I think you're right about the one in May. I'm, I don't know the Bernalillo one. They're both good times. Go and check yeah. it out. You know, try some margarita wine. Uh, mm-hmm. you <laughs> have, have a good time. Cause they're, yeah, they're a lot of fun. All right. Good well, job, cool. everybody. <laughs> well, thank you again for joining us uh, for season, our arbitrary season number, season five of the weirdest yes. thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll, uh, I guess we'll be back in a couple weeks. So uh, yeah, I'll try to be like maybe slightly less grim next time. Cool. So I feel, but I feel like mine was, I'm glad I went second. Yeah. Now uh, the only reason, part of the reason I decided to do mine is I knew you were doing a more uplifting one. I was like, if I'm ever going to do this one, I need, Nas. I need to do it when you can be the palate cleanser. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review. Don't forget that you can rate us now on Spotify. Uh, if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, go ahead and rate us there. Um, yeah, welcome to all of our new listeners. We hope you guys are having a good time. <laughs> and holler at us with your thoughts on this episode and your Yellow Jackets thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, stay weird. Stay curious. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.